0: You're listening to the Unveiling Mormonism podcast from PursueGod.org. Join us every Monday as we pull back the curtain on Mormon history, culture, and doctrine. Find more resources to continue the conversation at PursueGod.org forward slash Mormonism. Okay, Bo and KD, today we're joined once again in the studio by our good friend, the professor Ross Anderson. And we're finishing up our series um, called Bible Basics, but it is kind of the special edition, the LDS Investigator edition of Bible Basics. You can find it online at pursuegod.org. It's lesson number seven. Last week for lesson six, we talked about misreading the Mormon story into the Bible. And today we're going to talk about misreading Mormon doctrine into the Bible. And we're going to just take four passages today, guys, that Bo, I would imagine you you would know these passages fairly well as a missionary. You probably you probably shared these with people as a seminary teacher. I'm sure you shared these and expounded on these passages uh, with some of your students. But each one of these passages is a biblical passage that Mormons use to, to justify a doctrine that is Mormon but not biblical, right? So here's what we're doing. For those who are listening at home, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 39 to 42 we're going to look at 1 Peter 3:19, we're going to look at James 2, and we're going to look once again at the very end we're going to look again at 1 Corinthians 15, but this time we're going to look at verse 29 and we're going to talk about like the different degrees of heaven, the different heavens that Mormons believe. We're going to look at kind of this idea of spirit prison that Mormons have that's not biblical. We're going to look at the idea of being saved by by works and not just by faith and we're going to talk about I think kind of a tricky one. We're going to talk about proxy baptism. So some of our listeners might not even know what some of these things are. So why don't we start with this? Bo, before we read First Corinthians 15, um, and we'll let KD do that, to explain to us what what she's about to read and how Mormons would kind of pull some of their specific Mormon doctrine from this.
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, you know, when we were teaching investigators or, you know, what I would occasionally Bible bash with a Christian or whatever the case may be on my mission. Um, and then obviously, as I was teaching seminary as well, I would go to these verses in the Bible um, regularly to support the doctrinal claims of the Mormon church. And uh, in this first passage, in First Corinthians 15, verses 39 to 42, we, uh, you know, I, I used this frequently to support the the doctrine of kingdoms of glory. So in, in the Mormon faith, um, it's believed that there are three, let's call it three heavens, right? Or three degrees of heaven. And, uh, those degrees of glory are explained. Mormons believe in first Corinthians 15 verses 39 to 42, basically that there is a celestial kingdom of glory, which is where God dwells, a terrestrial kingdom of glory, uh, which is where, uh, you can be visited by Jesus and then a telestial kingdom of glory, uh, which is where the presence of the Holy Spirit might be. So those kingdoms of glory are what Mormons believe are ex- is explained in 1 Corinthians 15:39 to 42.
0: Okay, so let me just make a note for our listeners. Again, Bo, what you just explained is what Mormons believe, but it's not what the Bible teaches, but a lot of Mormons don't know that because they would be reading these verses. And then they would probably, I would guess in their in their quad, in their Bible that had Mormon commentary, uh, when, when they would read these verses, they would probably read the Mormon doctrine in the commentary. Am I guessing right there?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so and, and look, we'll we'll read this here in a second, but there's actually a Joseph Smith translation of this passage of scripture specifically that adds in another word. Uh, that's an invented word, and that word is um, telestial. So, oh, okay. Yeah, and well, we can get good. into that here in a second. But let's let's read at least just what the original King James says, uh, and then maybe you know we can get into that the Joseph Smith translation. I think we've done a whole episode yeah. on that.
0: Yeah, because again, Mormons in their quad, in their you know their scriptures. If you, if if our listeners have ever seen a Mormon with their big, huge, thick Bibles that has. It has the King James Version along with the three other standard works for Mormons, but it doesn't have the Joseph Smith Translation, but you're saying that at, that at least in their King James Version, that they'd have the quote from the Joseph Smith Translation, I would imagine, in the commentary?
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there'd be a footnote to the commentary, and it would have just the quote from Joseph Smith Translation that would basically add Mormon doctrine to this verse and, okay. and help clarify for Mormons... Uh, what joseph believed this verse was was actually saying
0: okay this is gonna be so good because we're gonna we'll have katie read this passage we'll make sure to explain what the joseph smith translation would add and then and then professor the the professor dr ross anderson is going to come in and help us to understand how to think about this biblically okay so katie take it away
2: all flesh is not the same flesh but there is one kind of flesh of men another flesh of beasts another flesh of fishes, another flesh of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. So also the resurrection of the dead It is sown in corruption. It is raised in in incorruption.
1: Okay. So I would share this, uh, this passage with my investigators or with my seminary class. And I would say, okay, uh, what that is teaching here is that during, and and I would explain, look, first Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection, right? Uh, and. What What is being taught here is that there are multiple kingdoms of glory and that our bodies when resurrected will be resurrected to a specific glory, right? To a kingdom of glory. And it even says in this passage, there's a glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars and they differ in glory. So I would then go on to explain that there are three kingdoms of glory and that when we're resurrected, our bodies will be resurrected and placed in one of those three kingdoms. Then I would obviously point out the Joseph Smith translation, uh, and if if you want, I can get into that real quick, or we can press pause. But but I, I think it's important. So the Joseph Smith translation, um, and this is if I get a few words, this is just going off of memory. But um, what it said is that there are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. And bodies telestial. But the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another, and the glory of the telestial is another. Right? So he added the word telestial to the Bible, to the King James Bible here. Um, and that word is is made up. Uh, and then we'll get into that because the the it, it 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 all comes down to not understanding the, the scripture. It does an, an, a misunderstanding of what the words celestial and terrestrial mean, uh, which then leads to this made up word called telestial.
0: Okay, so let's pause there for a second. I've got a million other questions here, but really what we're trying to do is talk about how to read the Bible and study the Bible properly. And Ross, in the last lesson, you would talk about language, you would talk about context, and you would talk about the author. So let's pause here for a second, and why don't you respond then? Because probably some of our Mormon listeners are saying, that's exactly right, bo got it right, that's exactly how I learned it. And, and isn't that what it's saying, right? If you're reading this with Mormon goggles on, and you've only ever read it through the lens of your Mormon faith you probably don't even know how to think about this biblically so Ross help us with that.
3: Yeah, for sure. Now talking about the language, what does the passage actually say? And we can take a look at like what the actual words are and what the words actually mean and so so we're not try- we're trying not to import a bunch of content into but let it speak for itself rather than f- uh, filtering it in some way. So um so the point is now in popular thinking, now now Bog did us a, a really good job of perspective, the Mormon perspective, because in but in popular thinking, people think about these as places where he he clarified that this is actually about individuals. It's about individual resurrection. And that's in the Bible is talking about what kind of body do the dead come with in verse 35. So we want to steer away from talking about places like these, this type of kingdom or whatever, but talk about the the resurrection body that's involved. Now there's certain resurrection body in the LDS lore goes to a certain kind of place prepared for that body.
1: Yeah. And I do, I I will clarify that Ross, right? Because in Mormonism, this actually is a place. So it's not, obviously in Mormonism, you are, your body, your body is resurrected to a specific glory, but that glory to your point represents a place. So the celestial kingdom in Mormonism. Is a place where God dwells. the the te- the, the terrestrial kingdom is a place. The celestial kingdom is a place. And those resurrected who have earned a certain merit go to one of those three kingdoms. So, like the horrible people on the planet, the murderers, they go to the celestial kingdom. The, the good doers that uh, weren't baptized as by the priest by Mormon priesthood authority. Go to the terrestrial kingdom, and then obviously those you know in uh, baptized by the priesthood authority that have gone, uh, you know, uh, through the proper steps of accepting the gospel in Mormonism go to the celestial kingdom. So those are places in Mormonism. And to your point, that's not you know necessarily what this scripture is referencing.
3: Yeah. So um, using the what those words, what do they mean? You mentioned how you know uh, the misreading of those words. So celestial, what does that mean? It means having to do with heaven um that's simply what the the from from latin and terrestrial it means having to do with earth and you can see in there the terra which is like we live on terra firma right it's it's the earth and so um and then telestial as you pointed out is just a made-up word and if you go online and look it up anywhere it just tells you oh this is what latter-day saints you know use to talk about heaven there's no other meaning and there's no Latin or Greek root that explains what that means. Now what's interesting is you're looking at the specific um words in in the text itself in 1 Corinthians 13 it talks about verse 41 mentions several 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 levels of glory, one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, and then there's multiple glories within the stars. And so if he's talking about kinds of resurrection or places where people are resurrected to, then it seems like there should be more than three. It seems like there should be several, you know, many maybe, and it and, and it seems like they should be named differently. So terrestrially, it doesn't say anywhere there's a glory of earth. More on that in a second, but what you should maybe call um, glory of stars, Would you'd call that astral, basically, based on the Latin word for earth for a star, you might talk about different astral levels of heaven or, or whatever. But, um, so looking at the words themselves, it doesn't really quite add up to the LDS perspective. Um, You know, you could have more, more of them. Now, the other thing is, is that celestial means heavenly, terrestrial, again, like I said, means earthly, but that seems like a a funny thing to call a degree of heaven or a degree of glory, to call it earthly, because that seems like a a contradiction. And, and in, in fact, in the context of 1 Corinthians 15, he's making a distinction between heavenly and earthly. He's saying, look, what kind of body do we have in our resurrection? If you're looking, he makes an argument to say there's all kinds of different um, kinds of bodies and flesh and so forth. He talks about fish and 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 mammals and all the rest. He says, you plant a seed in the ground and it dies. And what's, what's um, quote, dies, you know, because it it's life is not apparent until later. You bury the seed, so to speak. And later on, what is is sprouted out of that seed is very is a different kind of flesh or a different kind of um, construct than what you put in the ground. Now we know genetically it's the same thing, but it it looks very different and it has a different sense. So he's saying there's a difference between what we the bodies that we have now and the bodies that will be resurrected in. And he says, and it makes sense if you look at nature, look at seeds, look at animal world. He says, look at the heavens. And it makes sense that there's that it's okay, it's possible for there to be a different kind of um, body because there's all kinds of different kinds of um, structures and flesh and so forth in the natural world. And so, it, it seems to me like in that context that he's not talking about different levels of resurrection or different kinds of resurrection. He's talking about the difference between a resurrected body and a mortal earthly body the way we have it now. And so um, that's looking at the, the particular words. And he's talking about, if you look at verse 42, then in the context of the whole chapter, then it says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. And this is the summary. It's sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, it's sown as a natural body, raised as a spiritual body. So that's the gist of the argument that he's making, is that what we die with, our mortal bodies are different from the bodies that we're raised in, in the same way that heaven is different from earth, that celestial is different from terrestrial. And so his point is to um, correct, I think, a doctrine of the resurrection that maybe people were objecting to resurrection on the nature on the basis of what kind of nature our bodies will be and it doesn't make sense that we have something like um but he says no no we're not going to have the same body that we have now that should not be an objection to the resurrection our bodies will be vastly different from from the way they are now so i think that that should get to it so Ross the point is
0: that that what the author's intent in this whole passage in chapter 15 is to talk about the nature of the resurrected bodies not to talk about heaven and what heaven's like paul talks about heaven and what's heaven what heaven's like in plenty of other places but he's not doing that in the context of 1st corinthians 15
3: right that's that's understanding the author's content, and also there's just too many um, differences in the construct that you would drive from 1st corinthians 15 if you were going that direction if he was talking about that it would be a different Uh, structure than it would be then that's assumed by the LDS church.
0: Bo, do you, do you know, like, why did Joseph, I don't really know when he was working on his translation versus like when he worked on some of the other standard works. Um, Like what, do you know anything more about why he would read, he would do all of this, right? Right. Was he reading this one day and then he thought of the doctrine or was was he maybe reading about the the third where Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven then he's kind of trying to mix and match and then form this doctrine do you any, do you know anything about the history of why he read this this way
1: uh it's interesting you won't find a reference to the celestial terrestrial and telestial kingdoms in the book of mormon anywhere um you you won't which uh you know his his retranslation Of the bible came after he translated the book of mormon right and so it's it's apparent and and we've talked about this before but it's apparent that his theology is evolving it's an evolving theology and he um adds layers to it this is obviously a layer being added uh to it um and 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 yeah it's interesting because i i even had a cross-reference in my mormon bible to uh what was it second corinthians 12 or something that that they talked about Uh, being caught up to the third heaven, right? And and I would try to reference, I would actually tie that to 1 Corinthians 15, 39 through 42. And I would say, hey, see, look, Paul talks about the third heaven, right? Meaning that there are three heavens, by the way, did you know he references it here too? Mm. There are three heavens. There's a glory of the sun, the moon, the stars. We're the only church on the face of the earth that has a doctrine that that teaches three heavens, oh, right? Wow. And then okay. it's always just this like exclusivity that you try to, to teach, um, you know, as, as a missionary. And so, uh, because again, the claim is we are the only true church on the face of the earth. So if we're the only true church, we're the only ones that have the actual doctrine. So you, you, you have to point stuff like this out. So, so yeah, that was something that I would point out regularly. Now in terms of when, um, I can't remember the year that he was go it was a couple of years i want to say that he was going back over the bible uh but obviously it was after you know the book of mormon but
0: on a practical level then bo you said that so it makes it it kind of like distinguishes mormonism to be able to teach three heavens but i think on on another practical note it it and it's it's going to kind of play into some of the other stuff we're talking about today it like fits into this like you better try to get into the highest heaven so in my mind, it also kind of fits into the whole, m- sort of the the goal that we even see now in modern day Mormonism of like, like working hard to earn your way into the better heaven, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and Katie, you can speak to this, you know, better than most. I think the, you know, the whole point of living the gospel was to make it and qualify for the celestial kingdom and anything less was, you know, was mm. failure, right? So like... You 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 had to make sure that you were a full tithe payer. Um, you had to make sure that you were regularly attending the temple. You had to make sure you were faithful in your callings and that you never said no to the bishop when he extended a calling, just because you wanted to make sure that you were faithful, so that you would qualify for the celestial kingdom. I mean, it was you know it was basically taught that this that only the celestial kingdom is where God dwelt, and it's the kingdom reserved for the saints who obeyed the laws and ordinances of the gospel mm-hmm. right what would you what would you add to that did you, did you feel pressure like what what was that like for you in terms of like were you trying to qualify for the celestial kingdom what What would you say
2: absolutely i was trying to qualify for the celestial kingdom i mean that's kind of what's driven into your mind since you're a young child if you grew if you are born into mormonism and um you know this is the path this is the path that you must take, not only to attain the highest glory and to be with God, but also so that you can be with your whole family. So this this is the place where families are linked together, and this is the place where you are able to continue in your marriage, continue in your with your children, continue um, the relationships that you had on Earth, and also go on to build more relationships and to, um, create your own planet basically, or your own earth.
1: Now I didn't read any of that in first Corinthians 15, <laughs> but that is, you know, the, uh, the extended version of, mm. uh, the interpretation added to first Corinthians 15 for Mormons for sure. That's Yeah. It. The- yeah well put Katie.
0: And that's why I think understanding how to read the Bible correctly is so important. Because, again, here's just a couple of verses that that Mormons for for a long time have taken out of context, and and so you then you end up living a lie. Essentially, you're you're being controlled by this. This lie about the nature of heaven and levels of heaven and all that stuff. And Ross, by the way, maybe you, you should just real quickly answer. You know, Bo mentioned that he would cross-reference the passage about Paul taken up to the third heaven. That one's really easy to explain. Why don't you do that real quick?
3: Yeah, it really is. It, it's reading when you make that mistake, you're reading our view of the universe back into the univ- view of the universe or the cosmology we might say of the first century in the ancient world so in that world there were three heavens but they weren't the celestial kingdom and all the 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 first level of heaven was the the heavens that the birds fly in where the airplanes today would say would fly that's a atmospheric heaven the second level of heaven was the the stellar heaven the, the bodies of the sun the moon the stars out there that's a that's a heaven that's farther out than the atmospheric heaven and the third level of heaven was the place God dwells. And so two of those are part of the physical world and one of them is something that transcends the physical world.
0: Yeah, so literally it's just when he says I was taken up to the third heaven, it just literally means I was taken to heaven. That's that's all Paul means there. But again, if you don't understand the context, if you don't if you don't read the Bible correctly, then you're going to stitch that together along with his misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 15, and pretty soon you're controlling families of of people saying, you better work really hard to get to the better heaven. But guys, it's not just just three heavens that Mormonism teaches. They also teach about something called, Bo, is it called spirit prison? And why don't you explain what that is real quick before we have KD read the text that they use for that?
1: Yeah, sure. So as part of Mormon doctrine's plan of salvation, uh, you know, there's a place where all of our spirits go when we die. And again, Mormons always hang their hats on, like, we know where you go when you die, and we know where your loved ones are right now. Uh, so it's always, you know, it's a heartwarming doctrine to be able to say, I know where your loved ones are, they're being taken care of, etc. Right. So this, this doctrine of the, um, where your spirits go when you die is called the spirit world so mormons believe in uh, a spirit world where there is a spirit paradise and a spirit prison so often mormons will uh point to a heaven and a hell reference in the scriptures as being it and, and interpret it to be spirit paradise and prison okay so spirit paradise spirit prison makes up what's known as the spirit world and Mormons believe that is on earth. The spirit world is all around us. It's on earth, right? And uh, there's essentially two levels, right? Uh, there's there's spirit paradise, spirit prison. And the way to take the elevator <laughs> or the escalator from spirit prison to spirit paradise is to receive the gospel. Okay. Mm-hmm. So those who do not have the gospel of, call it the gospel of Mormonism, Mormons would say the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who have not accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ um, are in spirit prison. In spirit prison, uh, we can get into this. I, in spirit prison, Mormons believe that they are given an opportunity to hear the gospel and make a choice to accept or reject the gospel. If they accept the gospel, then they need to wait for a nice Mormon man or woman to do their temple work for them, which mm. we'll get into in the next First Corinthians section. <laughs> yeah. Um, where they then can accept these essential ordinances and go to spirit paradise awaiting the resurrection.
0: Okay. And so again, all that stuff you just explained, good job, by the way, is not biblical, but it's crazy that so much of what you just explained comes from, is sort of plucked out of thin air from one verse. And it's just a short one. And KD, why don't you read it for us in the King James? It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19.
2: By which also he, Jesus, went and preached unto the spirits in prison.
0: Okay, so there's there's Joseph Smith or somebody reading this saying, ah, there it is. I'm going to go ahead and use this. I'm going to develop this idea of spirit prison. And yet, Ross, help us to understand what this verse is actually talking about.
3: Well, unfortunately, nobody really knows what it's talking about. There are like 40 different um, Protestant uh, biblical interpretations and scholars have uh, best guesses based on the language and the context and the, and so forth. But the challenge with this one is be, is that um, there's very little to compare this concept to in the rest of the Bible. And, and Peter, as he goes through this uh, chapter three, he jumps really quickly into this, and then he jumps really quickly out of it. And so it's hard to tell what the context clues are and, and what the kind of things are. So, um, so we don't have a lot of information in the text itself. So, lots of people uh, have made interpretations, which are at best their scholarly, educated guesses.
1: Can I give the Mormon, non-scholarly, educated guess? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yep. So, so Joseph Smith taught that um, you know when Jesus was crucified, that his spirit actually went to the spirit world. In fact, in Doctrine and Covenants, uh, well, I want to say it's 138, Joseph F. Smith had a vision of this, right? Basically, he was pondering 1st Peter 3 19 and had a vision. So, the vision that that he saw is that Jesus went to the spirit world and s- basically set up or established a missionary movement where the where he basically unleashed the spirits in paradise to preach to the spirits in prison right and so there, i can't from
3: these verses uh we can't say oh that that totally doesn't fit uh, because it in a way it does, it's imported though we, we look at the larger context of the whole bible i mean peter's purpose is he's trying to encourage christians who are going through suffering and trying to encourage them to stay faithful. And, and so even his, his intention, um, we're not quite sure how this contributes to his intention for to do that. Um, he's trying to give people hope that God's at work. And so all we have is the spirits in prison. It, that That's a quote there, but it doesn't say maybe who he's talking about there much in the surrounding verses. Verse 20 says that these are refers to people who disobeyed God long ago during the time of Noah. So yeah, maybe they are people who, who have died and they're waiting somewhere. Um, the New Testament word preach, it says that Jesus went and preached to them. That word basically means to proclaim, and it can apply to, to preaching in many cases in the New Testament. But it's it's not the only possible meaning. Um, and so, it's not obvious that Jesus was preaching a salvation message. He may have also proclaimed something to the spirits who have died. And, but, but what? Interpretations on that vary. Uh, some people believe that Jesus came and proclaimed to the people who had died and been disobedient to God in the time of Noah. He came to proclaim to them that judgment had been resolved. That in other words, because of his death on the cross, that things were sewed up, and that and that he's the winner, and he's he's not been defeated, and so there could be some kind of a victory proclamation there, because um, he's talking about the resurrected Jesus. But other scholars have different perspectives. It's hard to see the linkage between these. So what I would say to our to our listeners is that just because there's a silence there that we can't fill it up with just anything we want to. Mm. Um, we have to make understand it in the larger perspective. And so if we take the larger perspective at all, um, then we're looking at how Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus came for salvation and Hebrews nine twenty seven says that each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment. And so talking then about the sacrifice of Jesus in that context. And so the larger scripture uh, doesn't really allow the idea of a second chance salvation after we've died. And that would be the thing that that Christians would, would go back to, fall back on, I guess, to really understand this and say, well, no, it can't mean that because there's other passages in the Bible that that preclude that. Yeah. So we, so Ross, what you're saying, let me try to summarize what you're saying, that we can't
0: necessarily fully understand what he is saying, but we definitely know what he is not saying. And he is not saying that there's some waiting place like the Catholic idea of purgatory, the Mormon idea of spirit, prison, spirit, paradise, where you're, you know, after you die, you have a, you have a second chance, right? But it's so baked into Mormon doctrine in Mormon theology that bo maybe it's good for us to kind of skip back to kind of go back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 um because this is kind of where the concept of baptism for the dead comes in so why don't you real quick connect those dots and then KD will let you read the passage from 1 Corinthians 15
1: yeah for sure so so 1 Peter 319 is is critical for Mormons that white space or the that what they're not saying, Mormons are going to be saying a lot, right? With that, with that wise pace. So, so what Mormons interpret here is be, okay, if there's a spirit world and if Jesus went and preached to those spirits, that means that those spirits need the gospel. Okay. So if that's the case, then in Mormonism, there are also what Mormons would call saving ordinances, like baptism, Mormons view as a saving ordinance. Um, other ordinances that get you to the highest degree of celestial glory for Mormons would be temple ordinances like initiatories, endowments, and then a temple ceiling to your spouse and to your children. So those, those um, ordinances to Mormons are everything. They are critical. Those works are critical to your salvation. So if there's spirits that need the gospel they also need ordinances. Now, here's the problem:
0: Can't they do the ordinances in in spirit paradise or in
1: spirit prison? Bingo! That there's the gotcha, right? Mm. The gotcha is Mormons believe you need a physical body to perform these ordinances. Can you baptize a spirit underwater by immersion? I don't think so, mm. right? Uh, so, because of that, Mormons believe in the, uh, that. That uh, and and then reference First Corinthians fifteen twenty nine. So here's the reference. 1 Corinthians 15, 29, again, in, in 1 Corinthians, in, in Corinthians 15, it's talking about um, the resurrection, okay? And what I would teach on my mission about this passage is that, hey, uh, there are spirits that need the gospel, but just because they hear the gospel doesn't mean that they can just be baptized and accept Jesus, right? Everyone needs to be baptized to be saved. What about all those people that have died without being baptized, without hearing the gospel? What happens to them, right? Well, in Mormonism, we have the answer. The answer was actually taught long ago in the Bible, right? And then I would read this verse.
2: Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they baptized for the dead?
1: So I would say, hang on a second, right? Uh, This was even taught in the New Testament that people were baptized for their deceased. Because again, ba- if baptism is essential and if baptism is what gets you into heaven, uh, if if you didn't have a chance to be baptized, there's got to be a way. So in Mormonism, what, what's taught here and what's, I guess, interpreted in this passage is that you can be baptized for those who have died. To give them an opportunity in the spirit world from 1 Peter 3.19 to accept that baptism and uh, go to the celestial kingdom from first corinthians 15, 40, uh, 39 through forty two uh so yeah, there we go. makes sense, yeah, so Bo let help
0: us understand this just real quick. So for you and kD, did you guys when you were in when you were in high school, when you were in youth group, did you actually do this some I mean, before we have Ross explain this and why this is a fallacy. Like, this is a pretty significant thing. I would imagine if I were a Mormon young person or even a, retire, a retiree, which I know there's a lot of retirees that retire near temples and do baptisms for the rest of their life. That's, I mean, I got I to gotta imagine, guys, that that feels pretty good because you're, you're doing something they can't do for themselves. So in essence, it's like you're their savior almost. Is that almost how it felt?
2: Yeah. So from the time that you're 12, you um, can get an interview from the bishop to get a temple recommend and you can go do baptisms for the dead, which is in the basement of the temple. You're not allowed into the upper levels. But yeah, I mean, this feels really good as a 12 year old kid, you're going to help save people from spirit prison. You know, you're helping them move up in the levels basically that they need to be uh, admitted into the celestial kingdom
1: so we would go all the time as it you know in youth groups i, I mean i remember once i had a car right me, me and my friends we would go a ton to the temple we would try yeah. to go once a month or even you know sometimes once a week we would go perform baptisms for the dead and, and again this is why mormons love um Family history, mm-hmm. right? This is why they're doing all of these these family trees. it's It's really phenomenal work what Mormons do with uh, with genealogy. The purpose behind that genealogy work is so that they can then go do temple work for uh, their deceased ancestors or friends or whatever. And so what I would do is, yeah, I would go to the temple, do baptisms for all of these deceased, and uh, feel, yeah, you feel amazing. Yeah. um, Doing baptisms for the dead, so you know it's it's funny. Uh, I, I don't know. I've probably been baptized. Oh my goodness, I've been baptized over three hundred times. Mm. <laughs> wow, life. wow, um, easily over three hundred times for for deceased um, people. Yeah, for and sure. And how many how many
0: times? Like, so if you go on a Saturday, or I, I think I heard you say in an earlier episode that you would go as a youth group. Sometimes youth groups would go. And do a youth group trip so yeah like if if you go there for a couple hours how many time, how many time how many people are you being baptized for in in that time span
1: yeah it depends sometimes five sometimes 10 sometimes 20 people Mm -hmm. at a time depends on how big the youth group is how many names you brought versus how many names are available at the time at the temple um but yeah i mean you would sometimes get baptized for 10 20 30 people and then after that in, in that same session, you'd be, and this is where it gets interesting, We you would confirm that deceased person, a member of the church mm. of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then give them the gift of the Holy Ghost. So an essential part to being saved is to become a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is an interesting little I don't know. It's it's something interesting that I don't think Mormons talk about a lot, but that was part of receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost for these spirits that we were doing the work for.
0: And again, all all of this, I just can't even imagine for our my non-Mormon listeners, just think about that you're sitting there with your buddies in high school. This I mean this this is so much more meaningful than watching a movie and eating popcorn. Like you guys seriously, you're thinking in your mind, I am doing something for eternity. Like this is going to impact this guy from 1629. It's going to impact his eternal destiny. I'm doing something for him that he can't do for himself. Only I'm going to be able to do this. I mean, I can't even imagine that spiritual arrogance. You know, some religions teach that, you know, you can do works to save yourself. This goes a step beyond that. This is saying you can do works to save someone else, not just to save yourself. That's crazy. And again, it's a lot of this is, again, it comes from this one verse from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29. And this is why it's so important to learn how to study your Bible so that you don't end up in a religion that is so far afield in teaching stuff that's, well, A, not true at the very least, and B, actually very, very damaging in so many ways. So Ross, explain to us What's going on here in first Corinthians 15 29
3: Yeah, so that's great. Let's start with the author's intent in First Corinthians 15 the the Apostle Paul wrote this, his primary concern in that chapter is to defend and explain the doctrine of resurrection. okay so that that's why this comes into play. and then so in the context of that chapter, what Paul is doing is stringing together a number of reasons why belief in the resurrection is valid and so, um, the verse 29, where it talks about, what about those who are baptized for the dead? It, it seems like in that context, he's pointing out maybe the inconsistency of people who deny the resurrection, the final resurrection. He's saying, well, why would they practice baptism for the, resurre- for, the for the dead if they don't really believe in the resurrection? But it's a minor argument. It, it's one in a string of things to say the resurrection really matters the way that that we've taught it. Now, in the larger context, so we'll come back to the language in just a minute, but in the larger context in the New Testament, there's no other evidence for, for this anywhere for the vicarious baptism idea. And if it was such an important practice, then you would wonder whether why the New, New Testament would not have spoken more about it, or why Paul would not have expounded it more fully right in that very chapter when he mentions it. And then there's the historical context that baptism for the dead, whatever that means, was was never a regular practice of the Christian church. And at least that's what history tells us. And the only evidence of the practice was among certain heretical groups that arose sometime after 1 Corinthians was written. And so they they arose in maybe response to the misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians, but they're not who Paul is talking about. And so that, that's the context of first uh, chapter 15, then the larger New Testament, and then the, the context of history. So looking at the particular words again, there's not a ton of evidence here to know exactly what Paul is referring to. Again, he's kind of in a passing argument. There are some clues, maybe more clues than there is in the, in the first Peter one we just talked about. Paul does not explicitly condemn it, but he doesn't endorse it either. So a big clue on that is Paul doesn't say why are we then baptizing people for the dead? He says, Why are they baptized for the dead? And so he uses this distant pronoun that is, it, it really distances himself from the people that, and distances his audience from the people who are doing this. It's not us, it's them out there somewhere. And so it's really a long shot from mandating or endorsing the practice of baptism for the dead at all. And that's that's really all we have. Um, the language, that's those are good clues that help us really understand maybe that Paul's not talking about something. Now when he says for the dead, yeah, there is a vicarious element there for sure, on behalf of people, but but there's a lot of different interpretations because that Paul didn't go into more detail about it. So some people think there was um, people who maybe died before they could be baptized physically in this world and they and they would baptize somebody for them at the time but but that's not seeing baptism as a saving ordinance it's seeing it like they just wanted to check the box for somebody or make make them feel it, like they're included so there's a lot of different interpretations and understandings of what this practice was but again this is a case as you said Brian earlier that we don't know exactly what Paul was talking about But we know what he's not talking about. He's not talking about the practices of the mainstream Christian church at that time or practices that he himself endorsed, believed in, or uh, mandated.
0: Yeah, here's a good verse to counter, Bo, what you just explained from the vantage point of baptism being a required ordinance for salvation. Paul says, the same author, Paul says in Ephesians 2, salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done, so none of us can boast about it. So salvation, he says, you were God saved you by his grace when you believed, not when you got baptized. He saved you by his grace when you believed. And so Paul is very clear all throughout his writings. And he wrote, almost half of the New Testament, the books of the New Testament, and he's clear over and over and over again that salvation is a work of God. It's not a work of a person. It's not a result of something you can do, a list that you can keep. It's totally by We're saved totally by trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross.
1: All right, hold that thought, though, because the Mormon in me is coming out, because I'm going to take you to James 2, <laughs> and we're going to have a conversation about works Brian, because what you just said is I heard it a thousand times when I was on my mission teaching the Mormon gospel. All right. So Katie, uh, go ahead and read James 2, because I would teach this all the time. Uh, James 2, 17 and 18.
2: Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man say thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works.
1: Mike drop. That is a mic drop. That is a Mormon missionary mic drop moment right there. Like I every time I would just be like, so what are we talking about, guys? Right? Like are we like your faith is only real faith if evidenced by your works. So if you're if you're telling me Brian that I am saved through grace by faith, I've got to do these things in order to prove that I have faith. So I want to I hear the response because for a Mormon, this is, this is everything, right? Like you just heard all of these works we're doing in the temple. We're doing baptisms for the dead. We're sealing our, 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 our families together. We're doing initiatories. We're doing endowments. We're doing all sorts of rituals. And then we're doing home teaching. We're doing missionary work. We're doing our callings. We're spending 20 hours a week probably on, on church stuff. And in community stuff, we're, we're paying 10% of our income. We're interviewed by our bishop every year and asked if we actually were honest in our tithe. We're like, there's so much work involved in Mormonism. And the reason for it is because Mormons truly believe that, that f- faith is evidenced by their works, right? or, or rather works are evidence of their faith.
0: But but wouldn't you say that they would go even further and say that you're saved by your yes. works? Because I think yeah. the way you're saying it is probably closer to way the way Ross will explain it. But really, when you dig down deeper, Mormons believe. I mean, just like we said about baptism, like you have to be baptized, or or you won't you won't be saved. Whereas for Christians, that's not. We think baptism is a work that is commanded. But it's God doesn't wait to call you his child until after you get baptized. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, that's the moment where, you, where you've crossed over from death to life. And so wouldn't you say, Bo and KD, that for Mormons, it's even more than like this idea of, 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 of works evidencing your faith. It really is like, no, this is how you're saved. You know, it's partly by what Jesus did and it's partly by what you do. And if you fail to do it, then maybe someone in the future will get baptized for you and do some of these works for you.
1: Yeah. You're spot on. I mean, what you do, what you, what you, the works you perform in Mormonism unlock Jesus's atonement and saving grace for you. Right. Does that make sense? So it's like, I, that's the, that's the best way I can describe it. Like my, me getting baptized, me going to the temple, me um, getting endowed, me getting married in the temple unlocks the power of the atonement in my life to Hmm. save me. And and if I don't do that work, I will not be saved. That is absolutely Mormonism. Okay. So
0: Ross, help us understand this because this this is actually of all the verses we're talking about today. This is the one that's not just a Mormon verse. This is one that i think christians have wrestled with i'm sure many of our christian listeners would say yeah actually that
3: is a hard one to fully understand so ross unpack this verse for us yeah for sure i mean the larger context of james what's james writing about he's speaking to people who want a kind of christianity that's based apparently it seems like it's based on knowledge or verbal profession only but not action And so, for example, in chapter one, verse 23, he says, you want to be a, not just a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. And in, in later in chapter, chapter one, verse 25, he says, you know, don't just look if, you know, if you just look at the scripture and don't go away and do anything, it's like looking in the mirror and you forget what you look like. And so he's got this thread, this theme throughout there about an audience that is, wanting to settle for a cognitive kind or a verbal kind of Christianity. And so that, that's in play here. So, you know, he's, he's writing to try to make that make sense to people that, hey, there is a dimension of how we live that's part of the Christian life. And so, you know, he, he wants to address that, but it's not necessarily exactly what the LDS uh, world says. So when he says faith without works in, is dead, but does that mean that works contribute to salvation along with faith or, or that works prove that saving faith is real? And so is saving faith alone what it takes to be saved, but is that faith real or not real? And, and the, the question relates to the use of the word justified in the passage. The so verse 21 says that Abraham was justified by his works. And verse twenty-five says that Rahab was justified by her works, and so. But you look at that word a little more carefully. You see that you know in the original language in in Rome in uh, Greek, the word justified can mean a couple things. It can mean declared to be righteous, where God justified Abraham in Romans chapter four, where God said, "Yes, he is right with me." Or it can be demonstrated to be. It can mean demonstrated to be righteous. Depends on the context. So the idea of in, in Luke 7, it says, all the people that heard John the Baptist, the publicans, they justified God being baptized with John's baptism. So the people acknowledged that God is righteous. That's the second sense of the word. That's, I think, the, the sense of the word that's used in James rather than uh, the other one. So so one hand, it means you're saved, basically. It's a synonym for being saved. But on the other hand, it's it means that. That people can see the reality of what you say. So in Luke chapter 10, uh, the, Jesus says, who's my neighbor? Or the guy says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, gives a story of the Good Samaritan. And it says, but he willing to justify himself, the original asker, said unto Jesus, who is my neighbor? So the man wanted to de- defend his own righteousness. So the word justify means he wanted to demonstrate it. And so, on, on the other hand, you have Romans 5, which is being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So, I think understanding these two uses of the word justified helps us understand what James is really talking about here, that, yeah, um, Abraham was justified by his works, not before God, but in the sight of other people who, who, sa- who, who could say then, now, yeah, just Abraham's salvation is for real, because it played out. And in fact, in James, he he says himself, Abraham believed God in verse 23, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. So, so James is also saying there's this other kind of justification, and God's has made Abraham righteous by his faith. And then he talks about how, oh, that, but that showed up. It showed it looked like something. And so I think that helps us understand that. The good works have a place for sure in the Christian life and they are an evidence of faith. Um and, and James is calling out things where faith is just verbal only. Um like the cognitive belief of the demons about God's existence is they know it's true cuz God is real real to them. But that that they, they have not trusted God in any way. That's another thing then about the words is the word faith doesn't mean just understanding cognitive reality, but there's a side of that word in the Greek language that means to put your confidence in something or to trust or rely on something. And so those are the factors, I think, looking at the language that make us understand that, hey, he's really talking about real faith does produce a changed life, but the changed life is not the root of salvation, but it's the fruit of salvation. It's not the cause, but it's the effect. Bo,
0: I think, you know, we this whole episode we've made you play the the Mormon missionary or the, you know, the seminary teacher. I think it'd be good to let you at the end speak to your, you know, the, the folks who can relate to maybe where you came from, the life that you came from because I think you do such a great job of articulating it. I mean, you've been articulating the Mormon view but we're going to let you take this one home and land the plane on this passage. How would you articulate this now? Now, now that you understand, now that your eyes have been opened, you understand how to read Scripture, you're reading it now through a new lens, not a Mormon lens. You're reading it now through just a biblical lens. How would you explain this?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, thirty thirty five 35 plus years of uh, practicing the Mormon view, it, it gets you pretty good at it. So. Um, you know, I think I would that is hmm <clears throat> there's a lot that you could say but i but I think um Ephesians does a great job of summarizing it right so uh ephesians two eight nine ten I like, like that's the perfect summary in my mind uh God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you you can't take credit for this, it's a gift from God uh so that's verse eight. And um, uh, <laughs> my whole life, I've been trying to take credit for salvation. I was, I was giving Christ the praise. I, I was grateful for the atonement of Jesus Christ. I was grateful for his sacrifice. But at the end of the day, I was working for my own salvation. Um, and, even said, and then it goes on, right? So verse nine, it says, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it, and uh, I don't want to offend anybody here uh, that's listening. But you go to a fast and testimony meeting <laughs> every fourth Sunday, and what you hear often is, you know, um, gratitude to God mixed with boasting about uh, what we've done, um, and I'm guilty of it uh, just as anybody else and uh i'm guilty of uh, assuming i'm better than someone else because i attended the temple more regularly or because i was more faithful in my calling than my neighbor was in their calling that i was somehow uh higher in god's eyes and then it then it says in verse 10 it says for we are god's masterpiece he has created us anew in christ jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. See, and I I was doing the good things <laughs> in order to earn Christ's um newness that he was supposed to create in me, right? I was trying to earn my way to to glory. And the the craziest part, the craziest thing happened when I when I left Mormonism, when I found Jesus in the, in the pages of the Bible, when I read it for the first time, without those preconceived notions from Mormonism, it opened my eyes and I was able to accept Jesus. And when I accepted Jesus, that's when, uh, I felt a newness created in me. I became a new creation. I, I, I was adopted into God's family and, 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 that newness created in me, uh, set me on fire. <laughs> like, uh, like I've never, like I had never experienced when I was working for it. Now, does my life look incredibly different today than it did? No, I, I don't, I don't know actually, but the motivation behind what I'm doing every day is completely different. Um, goodness flows out of God's spirit in me now. And that's the best way I can describe the difference. I am now the temple of God and the spirit of God lives in me. And that's a pretty incredible feeling.
0: Hey listeners, Pastor Brian here. If you're enjoying our podcast, would you consider becoming a donor? Our goal is that these podcasts would reach the largest audience possible. So obviously it takes money to create good podcasts, but more than that, we want to make sure to market this to the whole nation and even to the world. That's where your donation comes in. So would you consider becoming a monthly donor? And to do it, just visit PursueGod.org